welcome everyone to How to Divorce During the Pandemic. My name is Shannon and I'm part of the Community Engagement and Events team at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. I'm going to start with a bit of housekeeping, introductions, and I'll let you know what's on the agenda for today before passing the mic over to our hosts. This past year has brought a lot of change and uncertainty, and so our team created this webinar for our community to offer guidance and provide helpful tips and tricks to help navigate family law matters throughout the pandemic. In this one-hour webinar, Russell and Michelle will be discussing what's new in family court, what hasn't changed, DIY divorce, top five cases you should know about, and what to expect going forward. And for those of you who are in the audience today that are in the legal community, I just want to make a quick note that the series has been accredited by the Law Society of Ontario, and this program contains one hour of professionalism content. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's hosts. From the greater Toronto area, we have Russell Alexander and Michelle Mulchin of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Michelle has been practicing family law for over 10 years. She is skilled in all areas of family law, including divorce, custody access, property division, child and spousal support, and family responsibility office enforcement matters. Her focus is on creating comprehensive, creative resolutions to family law matters. And Michelle excels at helping clients deal with complex financial issues that arise as a result of a separation. Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law. He uses his ex experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So now that you know a little bit more about our team, I'm going to now pass things over to Russell to start the presentation. Shannon, can you give Michelle the hard questions and I'll take the easy ones? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. <laughs> um, welcome, everyone. Really excited to be here today. We try to do a balancing act with our content because um, we know there's uh, some lawyers, some clients, a bit of a mix of a crowd. So we try to go in deep for some of the case law, but keep it general enough so that everybody can get something out of it. We're doing some polls today, which is fun. So we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, feedback is very important to us because it helps us understand what everybody's looking for in terms of content. And please put questions into the chat box. We love questions. So let's get right at it. Let's start with a poll. So first question, what interested you in attending today's webinar? If you can put your answer in, we'll give you a few seconds to do that legal professional, you're going through a separation or divorce, you're seeking guidance for a loved one or something else. Our um, Zoom program only allows for poll questions. So if it's other, you're welcome to message uh, Shannon in terms of what that is and it'll be kept private. So really good response, about 83% in so far. And it's another couple seconds and we're gonna close out our poll. Russ, I'm surprised that uh, the money back guarantee on this webinar wasn't one of the choices up there. How's that work, Michelle? <laughs> well, let's see. We will buy you a cup of coffee if you really despised our web webinar today. How's that? That's not how it works. It's, <laughs> it's a free webinar, so we're going to offer money back if uh, you're not 100% satisfied. If you are satisfied, that's great. Give us some feedback. Shannon's going to do a follow-up. So here are our results. Great turnout. We've got 35% uh, in the legal professional, learning more about the topic. Uh, majority of people are going through a separation and divorce and uh, are probably here to learn more. So hopefully we can help you. Uh, seeking guidance for a loved one, we have a 8% and other coming in at 12%. So it's be interesting to see what the others are. So that was uh, fun. So that's our first poll question. We're gonna do this throughout our presentation to try to make it a little bit more interactive and to get some more feedback. So let's make a start. What's new in family court? Well, everything's new and everything's the same. I guess that's not really an answer, but um, certainly uh, we went into lockdown in March of last year. Everybody was aware of that. Courts effectively closed except for urgent matters in-person hearings have been suspended and continue to be suspended. And we saw the rise of 
what we call a Zoom divorce. So using this technology to go to court to conduct your divorce hearing. We have another program that we do just on Zoom divorce to understand exactly how that works. So we experienced court closures in the spring of 2020, opened up in the summer. We've been back in and out of lockdowns uh, since then. In-person hearings, if I had to place a guess, probably won't occur until 2023. Uh, I, any time earlier, I think would be optimistic. So we still have lots of forms to file with the court. So that hasn't changed. You, st you still need to get your documents in before the judge, whether it's an application, financial statement, case conference brief, um, there's a pile of forms that you still need to comply with. You still need to serve your forms on the other party. Um, as I indicated, in-person hearings are suspended. The Superior Court of Justice has several practice directions they've issued dealing with uh, remote hearings, including page limits to certain conference briefs. You're going to want to be mindful of those practice directions. We're going to include those in the show notes today. So you're going to receive a follow-up message with links to all the cases and all these directions and legislation that Michelle and I will be reviewing. The family law rules are still in place. You need to follow the family law rules. There'll be a link to those rules in the show notes. You still need to swear and commission your documents. So you still need to provide that evidence to the court in the proper format. And the court, you need to be mindful, they have very limited access to paper. Uh, the judges do not have the paper files that they traditionally have. If you went to court prior to the pandemic, you would see a file cart being rolled in. Hopefully that wasn't your case, but unfortunately some cases do take four, five, six banker boxes. So courts no longer can access that information. They're relying on what counsel provide to them, what the parties provide to them. They're relying on uh, counsel to provide copies of previous court orders. They've improved a lot. They're moving to digital. We're going to talk about that in uh, a moment, or we can talk about it right now. We're seeing a gradual move to digital. So we have a court system that's been paper-based for hundreds of years. Uh, they had the technology in the 80s and the 90s, but no real incentive to fully pivot. That changed with the pandemic um, because of so safety protocols. They were required to pivot. We're going to talk about case lines later on, which is the online document filing program for the court. Um, we're experiencing different caseloads in different jurisdictions. Uh, some jurisdictions, you might be waiting eight, nine, 10 months for a conference. Smaller communities, uh, sometimes you might only be wa waiting three or four months for a conference. I talked to a colleague in Texas, they only need to wait um, six weeks for a hearing. Um, but in, in Canada, it's going to be a few months at least, if not longer. There's an increased expectation to settle cases. Uh, there's changes to the Divorce Act that we're going to touch upon. The court wants parents and families to resolve matters outside of the court system. So that's uh, that was always in place, but it's a much larger emphasis on it now with the new legislation. So let's talk about case lines. What's this all about, Michelle? Case lines is great, Russ. <clears throat> I've had a chance to play with it. I actually haven't had a trial with it yet because okay. my last trial was supposed to be a couple of months ago. And then of course we resolved it in advance, but I was really looking forward to case lines. I think it's long overdue. Basically what it is, it's a system where the parties or the counsel can show the judge, the parties, the other lawyer, um, a specific section of a document. So you upload all of your documents to Caseline. And if you want to, for instance, pull up a paragraph, I'm sure you'd remember in the old days, uh, we would, you know, you would ask everyone to pull out your casebook, you direct them to the right case, you'd get them to the right page. In the old days, I'd be sitting there late at night with a highlighter, yellow highlighter or pink highlighter, highlighting the section so you can say, okay, go to the highlighted section. It eradicates all of that. Now, all you do is you pull it up. You can actually highlight sections. You can pull snippets out of sections. You can make notes on sections. 
Um, a judge can actually make notes privately that only they can see. So if you're going along and a judge has questions, then they don't want to interrupt the flow of, uh, for instance, questioning or whatever is going on. They can make notes right onto case lines and come back and address those notes later and know exactly what they were, pinpoint the section that they had the question about. So I think case I lines know, is phenomenal. Notes are a good thing. Does that mean your case isn't going well or it's going so well that they're making notes for later? I, I always find it good when a judge is sitting there nodding his or her head and writing notes. I think I'm okay. doing a pretty good job if they're doing that. So Maybe I'm wrong. Me. Note-taking is a good thing. Okay, Note-taking for me is a good thing. Uh, it's when, when they, they get bored and they arms. kind of start looking out at the fly in yeah. the corner. That's when you when really... When they cross their arms and put the pen down, then maybe yeah. it's time to move on to a different argument. Yep, yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that's case lines in a nutshell. There's tons of training resources out there about it. So if you're interested, go online, find it. Even self-reps will have to learn how to use this for certain um, events. And usually the bar is really helpful. If you have questions as a self-represented litigant, you can ask um, the court clerk staffs. You can ask the other lawyer. Everyone's usually really willing to help and get everyone and everything on case lines. Yeah, great stuff. So then the next thing that's new is Zoom and teleconference hearings. So I've been practicing for, I forget, 10 or 11 years now. And it was amazing how quickly we were able to pivot from in-person, you know, waiting at that courthouse for hours before your name was called to these really great Zoom um, or teleconference hearings where they give you a time and the judge is there at that time. And, you know, you can't really go past your allocated time. There's pros and cons, but I really think it's a huge pro that everyone knows when they're gonna be online. And Zoom has been a great platform. I've quite enjoyed it. I think it's made everything pretty seamless. And for the most part, my clients have agreed they've even people who aren't tech savvy can pick it up very quickly, which I really like about it. As I mentioned before, Zoom trials are a um, new thing that have come across. And I was supposed to do one earlier this year, I'm a little- is this a pet custody case that we have on our screen? What's going on here? <laughs> no, this was actually, um, if you haven't seen it, this is the lawyer cat video and it is hilarious. It's, um, you can't tell, but there's a judge and two counsel there. One of the counsel, unfortunately, was stuck in the cat um, settings. I guess his kid had gone on and was playing with the settings. And it's a really funny video. I love it because I think as lawyers, we need to poke fun of ourselves sometimes, I, I think you know, even on at, Zoom. I think we have a link to it in our show notes to so look for it when you get the message. It, it really is a good chuckle. Yeah, Shannon, if you send that out. And uh, it's, it's the lawyer was happen. looking worried and then the cat's eyebrows made the cat look worried because he was mimicking the lawyer's. I don't know how anyone saying, kept a straight face on saying, that. saying, judge, thing. I'm really not a cat. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> If we can't poke fun of ourselves, you know, what yeah. can we do, especially in this profession? So uh, the other, another big change is, of course, the changes to the Divorce Act. And we've done a whole other separate Let, webinar just, on it. Sorry, let's just back up. There's, <laughs> You're we, still there's stuck on this, of, aren't you? <laughs> there's lots of examples, right? We've got people calling in from bed. We've got a lawyer in her bikini by the pool. We have uh, somebody testifying while driving their car. And even a little bit more disturbing, this morning I was reading a court of appeal decision in a CAS trial where uh, mom said nobody was in the room. They broke for a recess. She um, turned off her video, but her sound was still on. And so there was somebody in the room or she was receiving a voice message from somebody about a drug deal and how she needed to sell some cocaine to this other person. Uh, really damaging um, audio. And she moved for a mistrial based on the fact that it was too prejudicial. The Court of Appeal dismissed her uh, request, but this is an example of how this technology can really go sideways on us. Sorry to cut you off, Michelle. No, I hadn't heard about that one. You should uh, shoot me the case. But, you know, it we've all seen the the bad side of zoom as well so it's very important that 
you understand how the technology works, you make sure that you are disconnected, even after client calls, instead of just taking off my microphone, I physically unplug it just to have that extra piece of confidence that everything is disconnected. So it's a great um, piece of advice. And I'm sorry for that mom. I'm also very sorry for the children involved. It sounds like a really um, a tough case that maybe had to be heard. So as we were talking about the Divorce Act changes came into effect uh, earlier this year, I wanna say March 1st. And we've done a whole webinar on this. It's a, you know, there's so many changes. You really have to do a deep dive if you have a matter um, that you're gonna be using the new Divorce Act in. And you can actually find a lot of that information on our website. So if you have questions, please go ahead. And I think Shannon's gonna direct you to some of that information. You know, we got a six volume uh, podcast and YouTube series just on this, these changes, about eight hours of content. So we can just spend an hour just on the divorce act changes. All right, so what hasn't changed? Um, some legal traditions are very um, important and they continue. Uh, decorum is continues to be very big in the Zoom world, including your Zoom divorces. So the court's going to, and there's Zoom rules out there. I think we've got some attached to our show notes, some basic rules of etiquette you should follow when you're doing a Zoom divorce. Uh, they're going to expect everybody to maintain civility uh, and respect for the administration of justice. The ceremony of the administration of justice continues. You're likely going to see judges in robes. The court clerk may call the court's order at the beginning of the day and indicate courts in session, even though it's remote. Manners are very important and you don't want people speaking over each other during a Zoom divorce. I've seen one judge who actually put a lawyer into the waiting room because his time for submissions were done and he kept on talking. So he put him in the penalty box, so to speak, and just let him sit there for a few minutes. Is that a uh, timeout for us that he was given? It was, it was, you know, sometimes we need timeouts, but in a Zoom hearing, you know, if you're not paying attention to the court and it's not your turn to speak, you need to wait your turn and follow the rules of a Zoom platform. And I've actually um, had lot. that happen to me, Russ, where I my I guess my audio must have skipped for a minute and I didn't realize the judge was speaking. So I continued mm -hmm. to speak. And so the judge yeah. said, Miss Mulchin, you know, I'm speaking. And I said, I'm so sorry. You know, there was a glitch in my audio I hadn't heard. So th these things yeah. happen and judges are usually understanding. Obviously, if you're talking for 10 minutes at a time, they know that it's not a glitch in your audio. Right. And again, we have one hour long program just on this in terms of tips, practice tips, what you should do and not do with the technology. Uh, robes were in for a while. They're out. Then now apparently they're back again for certain hearings. So lawyers are, depending on the hearing, you're still going to be required to be gowned. Uh, most superior court matters that I appear before uh, are just suits or dress apparel. They're usually just conferences, not requiring robes. Um, still lots of forms, as I indicated earlier, uh, there's been a digital evolution to the justice system service is still required. Notice is one of the fundamental principles of our justice system that continues. Um, and I suppose case conferences before motions, right? All the basic rules that were in place prior to the pandemic in terms of litigating and following certain protocols continue in the digital world as well. Michelle? Absolutely. Some other things that haven't changed is the necessity for service. So, and what that means is when you go to court, when you submit a document, if it has to be served on the other party because everyone needs to have the same information. You can't simply give something to the court and not let the other side see it. They have the ability to see it and also to respond to it. Now, service has changed a lot, and I love this change, Russ. You know, back in the day, we used to have to fax documents over to council. You couldn't do more than 16 pages, you know, unless you had permission in advance. Most council were very easygoing, and you could easily fax more than 16 pages. But, you know, some council wanted to make things more difficult and more expensive for the other side. Now I can simply send an email 
and I can find out immediately if they've received it, if they've read it, if they've opened it, and I can easily serve my documents with just that email copy. I don't have to have a physical copy anymore. So that's really important. You know, there's still some logistics that hasn't changed. You still have to file your documents. You still have to ensure that everything's done properly and by the book. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if it's an initial pleading or a, um, a, a answer, sorry, an application or a motion to change, you do have to serve personally. You cannot just serve someone by email. And now there are, there are, exceptions to every rule. If, for instance, um, I had a case recently where the other party was in Alberta and had not provided an email address for service. So we were able to get around that and to not have to serve them personally. But generally, you still have to follow the rules. You still have to make sure that you do all of those things. And the court clerks are really good. They do check on you and they do ensure that you are following the rules. And of course, <clears throat> and this is a really big one, any status quo or existing agreements must still remain in place. You cannot simply make things up. You can't take things into your own hands. You have to follow the existing agreements. And I actually had a really great motion on this where mom and dad were separated. Um, mom decided to take self-help measures and take the children by, <clears throat> by herself. <clears throat> and the court found that it was inappropriate and actually hit her with costs for it. So it's very, very important. You really have to follow any existing agreements. No self-help, the court never likes yes. that, whether it's pre-pandemic or pandemic, that's a recipe for disaster taking matters into your own hands. I also find that now courts are even less, um, you know, willing to allow people off the hook when they do things like this because court dates are so limited. You know, to have to have a motion to tell a mom to give the kids back when she should know better and she had counsel who would know better. Um, the court really didn't like it. And just on that note, same thing with case lines. Uh, people will take advantages of, advantage of case lines and do maybe a five, 600 page document dump two days before a conference thinking, oh, now I've got this evidence to rely on. That's going to backfire. The judge is not going to read 600, doesn't have the time to read 600 pages and wouldn't read 600 pages because it's contrary to the practice direction. So you're going to show up in court. The judge is going to say, I haven't read your material. We'll likely, likely punish you with a cost order for uh, putting the other side to the expense of having to respond. And likely that court dates can be wasted. And like Michelle, Michelle just indicated, it's going to be several months before you get back before the judge. So being cute with the rules or trying to do an end run uh, using case lines or self-help is not going to go well. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. And I'm sure you and I both have horror stories of that. Yeah. All right. So let's move on uh, right now to the do-it-yourself divorce. So when we talk about the actual divorce application, let's talk about some nuts and bolts. What do you actually have to do? So what forms need to be done? So you still need to do the proper forms. You have to get the application issued. You've got to pay your fees. It doesn't matter now that everything's online. There's a portal and there's a way to go ahead and get all of that done. And you still have to do your form 8 days. Um, it could be either a simple application, a joint application, but you have to go through and properly fill out this document. I can't tell you, Russ, how many clients I've had who've come to me and said, oh, I filled out the application incorrectly, and then the judge ordered the divorce, but now I don't get child support, or now, you know, I didn't do X. So please, you know, take your time. It's a very important form. The There's forms also can be, The forms can be overwhelming. It's hard for lawyers who do this every day. They're updating the forms constantly. <clears throat> Even the orders are being updated. Um, so you really need to be careful and make sure you get it done right, especially the first time, because it's going to likely cost you more to do it later if you bring a lawyer in to fix it up and try to understand what happened. Sorry, Michelle. No, don't be. I absolutely agree. I still find the forms confusing. And I think it would be nice if there was a bit of a checkbox system, right? Are you doing it uh, as a simple divorce or a joint divorce? If you do simple divorce, then a certain set of things pop up. The old school style, the way that the forms are laid out, 
they're not the best. As you said, they need some updating, but you have to remember these are lawyers updating them. So they're going to be wordy still. They're still going to be detailed. I think we could probably do a better job in making them a little bit more user friendly. That's where you add in such further and other relief as council may request. <laughs> so when you forget to check off a box, you can go back to that statement. Um, there's nothing like telling a judge you messed up. They'll chuckle, but they'll give you whatever you want. They really will. They've all been there. So you still have to do your affidavit. You also need an original copy of your marriage certificate. So I see a version of it up there. Is that mine, Russ? Is that, did you uh, find that from my safe somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it might be yours, um, but we can get it reissued, right? If you lose it, it's no big deal. I think it's 18 bucks and we get a new oh, one for you. So. Don't stress over if you can't find it or if it's in a box somewhere and or we'll get it. We can get a replacement copy. I marvel, Russ. Some of my clients come and they've been married for 40 or, you know, plus years and they still have it and it looks pristine. They Mine's probably yeah. crumpled somewhere. I don't even know where this thing is. Um, and of course, you have to do your affidavit of service, which is simply a document that swears that you did actually provide a copy of this to everyone. Now, the is other thing that has pool in your backyard here, Michelle, what's going on here? Uh, I wish it were my pool in, in my backyard. Um, I wish my backyard were that big. It looks actually a lot like the view from the cottage, though. I have to tell you that yeah. that, that is kind of like how our cottage looks. But uh, you have to have the one-year cooling off period, meaning that you have to wait 365 days from your date of separation to get your divorce. I've actually found that most people wait quite a lot longer than that because there are a lot of issues that you have to figure out. And of course, uh, the Divorce Act um, maintains that you have to, at least as lawyers, you have to give people the option to consider marriage counseling or to get back together. And we have to counsel them if they have any questions with respect to that. And mm -hmm. nothing makes me happier than sending people to counseling instead of going down this path to divorce. If there are really good grounds and, and we believe that, you know, with some work, they'll be able to work things out. Yeah. We're not fanning the flames. If the marriage can be saved or you want to look at counseling at our office, we have a binder of referrals of people who can help you right away. Uh, they can do it electronically by Zoom. So professionals are able to assist. But some marriages are just broken and some people probably shouldn't be together, especially if there's incidences of domestic abuse or violence or all the other uh, troubling things that we see. All right, so top five cases. Anything else on the, the DIY? Or are you done there, Michelle? Just a really quick one. You have to, as we talked about, you have to make sure that there's a provision about child support or Section 7 expenses, you know, spousal support, anything like that needs to be in there. If there's not, the court or the judge will reject it. They're not going to sign the order if there's children, uh, unless the order or the agreement or the application, sorry, specifies the arrangements that have been made for child support. And we get, that's a common thing to overlook, right? Child support may, being, may be paid at, in accordance with the guidelines. But you need to explain that to the court so the court's satisfied that the proper provisions are in place. Great tip, Michelle. Thank you for that. Thanks. Top five cases you should know about. This is the fun stuff. Um, real life examples of divorcing during a pandemic. Um, so many important, interesting cases. It's hard to get down to five. These, uh, you know, we could, there is even a case this morning I was talking about, it, but coming out all the time. Uh, my top pick or one of the top five is Roberto P. Wright. This uh, came out very early on in the pandemic in the spring of 2020, where a party had suspended all access to the other parent because of COVID-19. Um, keep in mind, people were scared. They're still scared. They want to keep their children safe. Um, they may have wanted, they didn't want to expose their child, or they may have been doing it for nefarious purposes to frustrate the child's relationship with the other parent. And this is a real problem that we're facing today. If we enter into a fourth wave in the fall with one of these variants that they're talking about, um, all these issues that we dealt with last year are going to resurface. And these cases are going to provide us with some important guidance in terms of how these questions are going to be answered. 
So if you're going to make an argument like this um, to deny uh, access, or if you're on the receiving end of an argument like this, there's going to need specific evidence of the behavior and the plans or the conduct of the other parent that's inconsistent with COVID-19 safety protocols. Uh, the court's going to expect both parents to abide by all public health safety protocols. And you're going to need to put forward a realistic time sharing regime. So you can't simply just say access is over. I'll see you when the pandemic's done. There, the parenting regime, the time sharing should continue and it needs to be realistic. Um, the court also took judicial notice that social distancing is commonplace and accepted. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, provided some important guidelines for counsel and parents. So if somebody's doing self-help and cutting off access because of COVID, you need to follow the criteria set out in this decision. Otherwise, you're going to um, likely get a cost order and the children are going to be potentially put into the other parents' care. So uh, Ribeiro versus Wright. I think we're going to see this, uh, these issues pop up again if we go back into lockdown our fourth wave and um, the cycle of legal issues that the pandemic throws at families is going to continue. What did you think of this case, Michelle? I really like this case for us. I thought it was really important, especially the timing of when it came out. <clears throat> if you recall, the lockdowns happened in about March. This case came out in about March or April, very soon thereafter, and it was well written it was very clear and it laid out a set of protocols that we could all use to say hey if you have clients with questions what do we do and i know in our firm we had some interesting ones we have doctors we have people who work in long-term health care clinics we have yeah. people who um, are public servants and who have to be out you know with the public so this was a really great case i've personally used it many times since it came out and for parents, you know, if you're scared and you're worried about your child's safety, this case is going to provide you with some guidance in terms of what the court expects of both parents. So thank you for that, Michelle. Okay, Chase versus Chase. I'm going to set, a, set this one up and then we're going to do a quick poll. Haven't done a poll for a while. Um, so this case, uh, and we're going to see this again, you know, we're seeing a pattern every three, four months, similar issues come up with separating parents. In this case, the mother sought in order, order that the child shall attend school in person starting in September. How about that? That sounds familiar. And the child was to be registered prior to doing so. The respondent father in this case uh, in the, sought an order that the child remain at home until the school board's safety protocols were proven successful and more certainty on the health and safety of children at school could be guaranteed. We're, in, we're entering school season. There's rumors of um, a fourth wave coming up. It seems like a Judge Judy episode, Russ. Do you side with mom or do you side with dad? This is hard. You know, I, I sympathize with the parents because if you can keep their kid at home and keep them safe, um, so. Well, Russ, I'm having the same um, conversation with my husband. We're happily married. We're not yeah. divorced, but we have four kids and three of whom are school aged. And it's a tough decision, you know, yeah. and last yeah. September, it was even harder because last September we didn't, no one was vaccinated. At least this yeah. way, we know that educators, any healthcare workers, anyone who are going to be around our kids are going to be vaccinated. Yeah. That's at least a little bit of hope that we have. Exactly. And there's, social advantages to having the kids go to school, right? And of course. The important case, the, the important factor in this case was that neither the child or anyone else in the family had under any immediate family held any underlying health conditions, right? So fairly healthy environment. And the court ordered that the child be registered in person. The looked at the cases coming out of Quebec, there's two decisions. Uh, which essentially turned on health issues. So if the child or a sibling or the parent had uh, a compromised immune system or a health condition, then that child would be permitted to stay home because it would expose the home to unnecessary risk. On the other side, um, the court said there's no 100% guarantee 
that the kids are going to be returning, that returning kids to school, that they're going to be safe. But it balanced the risk of catching COVID against the other needs that the child has, right? Mental health, psychological, academic, social interests, um, as well as the parents' need for childcare. So the kids are going to school um, in person if the parents don't agree, if the government says this is the policy. Unless you can demonstrate there is some heightened risk based on some medical evidence that that would pose an increased risk to either the child or the immediate family. So really interesting result. Good chance we're going to see the, this issue pop up again in a couple of weeks. Um, we're just around the corner from going back to school and our numbers are jumping. So who knows what's going to happen, but this is probably going to provide everybody with some really good guidance. What did you think of that decision, Michelle? I really liked it. I think it was a good decision. It leads really well into the case that I chose, which is Guerin and Guerin, where- um, well, Let's get into it. Oh, wait. <laughs> where uh, in this case, there was a big- here we are. Thank you. There was a big difference. And the difference was that mom was not well. So it wasn't the kid, but it was mom. And so in this case, there were two parties who were married, had separated prior to COVID and were doing a shared parenting. So one parent had them for some time at their house and one parent had them for another time at their house. Once COVID happened and everything locked down, they decided that it was in the best interest of the family that they actually move back in together into the matrimonial home and do a nesting arrangement. And it was an interesting nesting arrangement because usually a nesting arrangement is um, the kids stay in the home and each party comes and goes for their parenting time. In this case, the kids stayed in their home, the parents stayed in the home, and then each party took turns taking care of the kids on their parenting times. The problem was that mom had lupus and it was a very um, severe case. She had lots of medical evidence to say that if she got COVID, things would not go well and her health would be severely affected. And the problem was that uh, dad didn't care too much. Dad had a girlfriend and dad would leave the home for extended periods of time, not tell mom where he was going. Uh, say what he was he going and he said he, he was going was he for long country drives, Russ. I, I don't know what he was, was doing. It was like an afternoon delight. There's more to it than that. But I, well, you were right because the girlfriend, I don't know why she did this, but the girlfriend actually slipped up and admitted to mom in text message that she was with dad at a time when dad had said he was by himself or going to the grocery, something like that. And so the court found that dad was, oh, and sorry, the other thing dad was doing is after he came back from these outings, he wouldn't wash his hands. He would, you know, make it very clear that he wasn't taking COVID seriously, especially with mom's health on the line. So the court found this was really bad behavior, not exactly stellar parenting, not a good example for the children. And they found that unfortunately in this case, dad should not have parenting time with the children. They removed dad from the home, which is a really serious and it's a, a relief that you don't often see and told dad that he can only have FaceTime contact with the children until things had calmed down. So a really interesting, really great case, but shows you, and I think it ties in with the other one, if there aren't health issues, then the courts are going to take things a certain way. But where there are health issues, courts are very serious and they will order whatever is required for that person's reasons. Yeah, amazing case. Exclusive possession for uh, the home is effectively kicking somebody out of their own home and not letting them back in. And I think dad's access was this digital after that, right? If I, if I remember it was, it was Skype or FaceTime, whatever um, he could okay. have. So let's think, let's see what our audience is thinking. Um, here's our next question. Do you think the judge's decision to remove dad from the matrimony? What do you think of the decision? Sorry. So let me pull this up real quick. Hopefully I'm going to hang of this. There we go. All right. <clears throat> what do you think of the judge's decision to remove dad from the home? Fair. Dad should be taking mom's health conditions seriously. Too harsh, the court should have allowed dad to remain in the home, but with strict provisions. 
So we'll give everybody a chance to. Um, to this isn't uh, fair, Russ. It doesn't allow me to vote. <laughs> we know your answer. You already. Told I know. Us. Everyone knows my answer already. But I think the theme we're seeing through all these cases is public health and the family's health. So if there's elevated risk, the court's going to err on the side of caution every time. And this case is uh, a fairly ex extreme example of that, uh, removing somebody from their home because they're playing games and not taking the pandemic seriously. And we all unfortunately know people or have friends who are anti-vaxxers and think it's all you know, some kind of conspiracy. And if that's the choice you're making and you have young children, the court's not gonna um, have any patience with you in my assessment. I think that's right. actually the next wave of case law, Russ, is what happens when, because my kids are younger, they're not eligible for the vaccine yet, but what happens when you have two parents with diametrically opposed views on whether a 12 or 13 year old should be getting the vaccine? Exactly, agreed. Let's share the results. Um, all right, whopping, uh, whopping result here, 83% fair decision, 17% too harsh. So um, it looks like the majority of our audience agrees with your and the court's analysis on this, Michelle. I uh, will say, Russ, that I think if there had been an option to properly segregate the two households within the same home, so if there had been a nanny suite or something where dad could mm -hmm. have remained in the home but not influenced mom's health, that the courts may have been receptive to that. But unfortunately, yeah. dad's behavior was so atrocious and was just, it was so clear that he did not value mom's health. And, you know, part of me wonders if he was hoping that something would happen to her so that he could get the kids. And I think that's ultimately why it's because he really had no regard for mom's health. I think that's why the court chose to do what they did. Terrible, it's terrible. All right, that, we've got a couple more points we wanna make and we're gonna move into the question and answer. Um, Still got about 10 minutes left. We're going to end right on time, but I want to thank everybody for their participation. Tyler and Boone, uh, real quick, motions instead of trials. Um, we're not having trials for a year or two. We just don't have the bandwidth. The court doesn't have the staff in the courtrooms and the trials that are occurring are um, Zoom trials. So this particular case, there was an, er an issue of parental deference and um, a parenting schedule. Most cases defer those issues to trial when the parent's decision-making is being uh, questioned by a grandparent or a third party. This case, the judge says, no, it's not in the best interest to upset the child's schedule with these people. I'm gonna roll up my sleeves. We're gonna manage this by contested motion and get this case moving ahead. So if you are jammed up with a case and you're waiting for a trial date, go to this case. Um, let's go to our final poll question today. What is your thought on conducting court matters virtually? What are your thoughts? So let's get this poll up and then we're gonna bring this train into the station. And Russ, I was thinking virtually, I believe all of these cases were heard virtually because right. of the timing of them. So or clearly just, can be done. Or just on written material, right? Mm -hmm. So here we go. Um, so moving forward, what to expect? Um, the court's going to continue to move to digital, uh, and we're going to continue to improve case lines. Access to justice is going to be improved. The cost is going to become less. Those are the two big complaints uh, we had prior to the pandemic. It was slow and expensive. Yeah. So a typical day prior to the pandemic right we wake up we get dressed we go to court get stuck in traffic get to the courthouse we have to find parking pay for parking line up at court security go find the courtroom wherever that is be and get stuck in a busy hallway uh, with a bunch of other litigants you're on the 9 30 docket and you get hurt at two maybe go home six hour day very frustrating experience for clients now we can do all this virtually your Zoom divorce starts at 9.30. It's scheduled for 9.30, it starts at 9.30. It's likely gonna be over by 10, 10, 15, maybe even sooner than that. So your six hour court experience is down to five, 45, 30 minutes. 
much more efficient. You're not paying your lawyer to sit in the hallway, uh, twiddling his or her thumbs. You're not dealing with uh, an angry spouse staring you down and all the stress and anxiety of going to court. So I'm really excited about the advantages that this has to offer, but there's some disadvantages too. So what do we need to be mindful of, Michelle? I think the biggest one is fraud. And, you know, we talked about all of the great things that come with Zoom trials, and I fully agree. I think it's an access to justice issue. I think that Zoom trials really make it great for um, clients to be able to attend to attend trials or to attend court. I have clients who don't even take the day off. They go into a break room somewhere that their boss allocates to them, lock the door, have mm -hmm. you know, have internet access for an hour, and they can go back to work, which is amazing. But we do have to be worried and mindful of fraud. And there was a recent case where a person provided some doctored evidence that the court quickly found out was fake. And, you know, I think that was before Justice Fryer. We have that in our show notes for whoever wants to look it up. Oh, what is it? Was it before Justice Fryer? I, think I mean, so, yeah. it was. It, it was not a well done fraud because they found it pretty quickly, but still these things happen. And I know that the system is still not perfect. I was actually before um, a judge recently and they didn't have our motion materials, even though we had filed them properly. Mm -hmm. So you do have to worry about fraud, fake affidavits, fake orders that the parties really are who they say they are. Um, altered evidence is also an issue. So text messages, video, there's also um, the concern about technology and how people who are not used to technology will be able to keep up with it. There's also issues about people who don't have access to, for instance, laptops and, um, you know, Wi-Fi or high speed Internet. So these are all things that we're trying as a bar to work on. And, and we're thinking about uh, launching a, um, a pod or a place where you can actually go in the courthouse to do your trial uh, remotely, but you wouldn't actually be in front of the judge, you would be doing it on a computer screen, which is great. It gives people the opportunity um, to have access to high-speed computers where they may not have had before. Um, there's also some questions about whether or not in-person hearings are more conducive to negotiations or settlements. And I think what you said before is important. That is that, um, you know, there that you have to do the best you can to resolve the things prior to going to court. So we no longer have that ability to spend two or three hours in a courtroom while we're waiting for a judge to hash things out. But I think that most lawyers are caught up now and most lawyers are having these four-way meetings and four-way calls before every single motion to try to resolve some of the issues. Yeah, and also victims of domestic violence, right? Not everybody has a safe place where they can make a Zoom divorce and we gotta be mindful of that. I'm certainly mindful of our time. So let's get into Q&A. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. And uh, this is always a great part of the program as well. Thank you. Oh, look who's back, our hostess. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Shannon. Thank Thanks so much, Russell and Michelle. That was really great. Um, and thank you so much for everyone who submitted questions. We're going to get through as many as we can right now. Um, so first question we have here is, what forms are required to apply for an uncontested divorce? And can these forms be submitted online? Good question. Um, you have to do your application. You have to do your, um, you have to get your original marriage certificate. You have to do your affidavit. You need your continuing record. You need your table of contents. You need your filing fees. But there's a really great, um, great website called ontarioforms.ca where you can get all of these things and they're all free. And they come in both PDF and Word copies. Something I noticed actually yesterday because I was uh, referring someone to this this website is they actually have the old forms up still so be careful when you're doing the forms make sure you're using the new forms please great thanks michelle and we'll make sure to include those in the show notes as well for you and tomorrow's you. email um so next question is are the judges interviewing children during the pandemic and if yes how is this done i haven't heard of any judges doing interviews Usually, if the child, what we're looking at usually is a voice of the child report sent through the office of the children's lawyer or a qualified assessor or social worker. And then that adult professional will report to the court the child's views and preferences. 
Um, very rarely, there's only one time in my 20 plus career where I had a judge suggest that he would meet with the child in chambers and the other party objected and it didn't proceed. So I know it's something that should be considered, but there's a proper mechanism to follow up through and it would be a voice of the child report. Thank you, Russell. Um, it looks like we have time for one more question. So the last one here is how do you get interim child and spousal support? If there is a large financial imbalance, can a spouse be compelled to pay a portion of the other's legal fees? That's you want to a big that question. <laughs> I didn't an leave interim, enough time for that one. <laughs> real quick, an interim order, you need to have a case conference unless it's urgent and get recommendations from a judge and then you can bring a motion for support. The second part of that question, what was it, Shannon? Cost. Cost? How do you yeah, you can, you can request that if one, one party is financially well off and you have nothing or vice versa, you can ask that the court uh, order that person to pay some of your legal fees uh, or even expert witness fees to move the case forward. It's in the interest of justice that both parties have a a level playing field when it comes to legal fees and evidence. Great question, Shannon, thank you. Great, thank you. So that's all of the time we have today. So thank you again, Michelle and Russell, and thank you again to everyone who submitted questions and attended today. We hope you've enjoyed the webinar. And if you do have any questions about our webinar series or any comments for our team, please feel free to reach out to me at Shannon at RussellAlexander.com. So thank you again for joining us today and we hope you all have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. Did, Thanks how everyone. How do you like that for a timely topic, Michelle? Back to school, just in time. <laughs> Oh, I'm not on that one. I'm actually, I'm going to probably have to sit in. I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. You, you can chirp us in the chat box while we're doing it. Oh, you know, I love doing that. <laughs> Anna, this is a really well done job. Perfect job hosting. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Thanks for taking Thank the time, you. everyone. Have a great day. Thanks.